I've got a prediction today, just, just a prophecy, if you will. And the prophecy is this. The Washington football team, by whatever name they choose to call themselves, will not be defeated in the Super Bowl tonight. And I have been correct on this prediction 29 straight years, so you can trust me. Little reason to doubt me, right? Watch the game with no anxiety whatsoever that we will lose. Okay, enough of that. It's great to see you because we're on uh, continuing our march through the book of John, the Gospel of John. Last week, we saw another miracle of Jesus, what's referred to as the feeding of the 5,000, even though that was just the head count of the men. Uh, add in the wives and kids, there could have been 15,000, 20,000 people in that crowd. And everyone knew that it was a miracle when it happened, so much so that the crowd wanted to grab Jesus on the spot and anoint him the king. But Jesus is on a mission, and being an earthly king right now is uh, not it. He moves immediately to another teaching moment with his disciples, and that teaching moment involves rowing. And our video kind of shows us that rowing in open water can be just a little bit challenging. It can test us, it can teach us, and maybe it can strengthen us. That's what Jesus, I think, has in mind. Back in 2010, a 16-year-old girl out in California by the name of Abby Sutherland had a dream to be the youngest person ever to circumnavigate the globe solo and unassisted in a sailboat. She's a Christian from a strong Christian family. I just throw that in for what it's worth. Well, what happened to her dream? A violent storm erupted as she was going through a remote area in the Indian Ocean, right? The mast was sheared off, and the boat suffered several, in sailing terms, knockdowns and barely avoided an accidental jibe. As an aside, the lexicon for sailors, the nautical lingo, is like a totally different language. So in nautical terminology, a knockdown is, and I quote, where the boat is pushed abruptly over to horizontal on its beam ends with the mast parallel to the water surface. In plain English, I think it means the boat is laying on its side. I think that's what that means. And accidental jibe, J-I-B-E. If you look that up, you're going to be directed to go to jibe, G-I-B-E. You look that word up, and you're now directed to go to jibe, G-Y-B-E. And there we find that it means to change from one tack to the other away from the wind with the stern of the vessel turning through the wind. If that's a bit confusing, you're directed to get help by looking up two other terms, quote, going about, and quote, wearing ship. That's where I gave up, and I'm not jiving yet. I think this is uh, this confusing lingo. Maybe the reason we find that people routinely fall off of cruise ships is just a theory worth pursuing. I think. Okay, back to Abby. She's adrift in a part of the Indian Ocean that ships usually do not go. No communication contact other than an emergency beacon. So for her, her trip did not go as planned. She had an itinerary but her itinerary got changed. 
She was eventually rescued. But while that's going on, her dad just kept saying through the whole ordeal, I know that God is in charge. In our passage, we read of a storm that experienced fishermen encountered. They had been out on that lake, or Sea of Galilee, as it's called in our text, all of their lives. They'd faced a lot of storms out there. I don't know if this was the worst one ever for them. We do know it was a trial, out basically all night trying to push through, and it was a tough sledding. So what I want to talk about today is navigating the storms or trials of life. After all, this wasn't just a storm for these guys. It was a trial for them as well. And whether you call it a trial or a hardship or an adversity or whatever, a storm, everybody in this room, my guess is, knows what that is. Everyone here knows what it's like to have winds of adversity blow. Everyone here knows what it's like to have waves of worry rise up. Everybody here knows what it's like to experience the the darkness, maybe, of isolation and the fear that comes with that just like these disciples may have experienced out on the water. We've all got storms. James, interestingly, he calls them various trials. Remember that, James chapter 1? You know what he said about them? Listen to this. James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy. And this is where we want to slap him, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, which means... He's simply reminding them of something they've already been taught before. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or perseverance, or stick-to-itiveness, right? And he's talking about trials, but you notice what he says here, not all trials are the same. They vary. There are various trials. Trials are different. Some are big. Some are smaller. Some are physical. Some are emotional. Some are spiritual. Some are brief, some are enduring and long-lasting, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe even years. I believe the Scripture teaches us that we can, in Christ, navigate these kind of storms, these kind of trials, these kind of adversities, and do a good job of it. I believe we can have peace in the middle of the crisis, if you will. But in order for that to happen, there are some things we all need to know. That's why I've titled this message, What Do You Need to Know in a Storm? So I'm going to give you four things I think emerge from this text. And by the text here, I mean this text that we read in John, but also in Mark chapter 6, which covers the same event. But the interesting thing is that each account, John's and Mark's, includes some information and facts that the other writer doesn't include. So let's check out Mark 6 starting in verse 45. Immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. 
But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. <clears throat> so, first principle that we drag from this, these, this event. Weather's unpredictable. What? Weather's unpredictable. Storms appear out of nowhere. We know this to be true if we watch the poor weather forecasters trying to tell us what is going to happen tomorrow, right? For example, we were all told on Saturday evening at 11 p.m. on the 8th of January to stay home. Do not go anywhere on Sunday morning because the roads would be sheer ice. And some of you obeyed. What was the weather that day? Nothing but just some rain. No ice. Well, these disciples didn't have these crack weather forecasters we have today. They have no clue what was supposed to happen that night on the water. So they had no clue about what was to happen on that night on the water. But I want you to notice something. Go back one verse with me for the sake of context in John chapter 6, starting in verse 14. This is after Jesus feeds the multitude. When people saw the sign that he, Jesus, had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet or Messiah who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain again by himself. So for these disciples, what happened here was completely unexpected. The boat ride. Here's why. They were no doubt on a spiritual high. They had just seen the feeding miraculously of fifteen to 20,000 people. Such momentum building. Given Mark's comments that the disciples' hearts were hardened, I think what that means is they were still trying to figure out exactly who this Jesus really is. At this point, they're just kind of mesmerized with all this miracle stuff. They're not the only ones. I think I'm accurate when I say that maybe Jesus' approval ratings were at their zenith, their peak right now. People were so jazzed and thrilled, they want to make Jesus their king. It says something in verse 15. Did you notice it? It says, Jesus departed again to the mountain. That is, he went back up the mountain where the miracle took place. Well, you can't go back up the mountain unless you come down the mountain, right? So here he is, up the mountain, feeds everybody, and now he walks down the mountain before he goes back up. Why does he walk down the mountain? Two reasons. One, to get rid of the crowds. You're dismissed. <laughs> Have a nice day. So he wants to get away from them because they've got a political agenda that he doesn't want to be a part of. Second reason, he's walking his disciples down to the Sea of Galilee and onto a boat with instructions to go across the sea to the other side. Meanwhile, Jesus intends to spend some time with his father back up on the mountain. So he puts them in a boat and sends them off. Now look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. One translation says that the sea arose. Those words became rough or arose is a Greek word that means to like arouse someone from their sleep. It's to be suddenly awakened. You might know what that's like. If you're laying in bed to sleep and all of a sudden you hear a loud noise. Somewhere like you think it's maybe in the middle of the night and it's maybe it's coming from your house somewhere. You're immediately on high alert, right? Sometimes you do weird and crazy things in that moment. 
Well, the waves, as it says here in this text, woke up. The sea woke up. It wasn't thunder and lightning as much as it was a gale force that came out of nowhere, right in their faces. It was sudden. It was unexpected. And in life, have you not noticed that the weather changes quite unexpectedly? Have you noticed that you make plans? You set your agenda. You have everything all worked out and planned, right? But then something happens. The circumstance just sort of blows things up in a whole different direction than you had originally planned. This wasn't on your itinerary, you're thinking to yourself. Remember the Apostle Paul? He planned to go to Rome. He even wrote that. He goes, guys, I'm coming to see you guys. See you in Rome. What he did not plan on was getting arrested in Jerusalem. What he did not plan on was becoming a prisoner there for two years. And although he did eventually go to Rome, he didn't plan on it being on a grain ship out of Egypt as a prisoner. His plans changed. Now, as the boat left harbor, it was a nice, sunny, beautiful day. But something happened in the middle of the boat ride. A storm happened. Acts 27 tells us the weather changed abruptly. It woke up. And a wind of typhoon strength grabbed that ship and blew it out to sea. In March 2019, I went in for what I thought was a very routine checkup. <clears throat> Turned out not to be routine. It led to a biopsy, the discovery of cancer, and a glide path to 120 radiation seeds implanted in me to kill it. Looking back on that, you know, everything seemed to be just sailing along smooth. And then suddenly, abruptly, the wind changes. And you go in a totally different direction. It's like you're at Dulles with your tickets in your hand and your trip all mapped out. But at the gate, somebody says, hey, change of plans for you, different tickets for you. You're not going where you think you're going. You're going to get on that plane, not this one. And so you get on that plane with these new tickets, and you really have no idea what this is all about. But you board that plane, and you don't get off of it for about two years. Hmm? I'm bringing all this to your attention simply to say that this is not unusual. You should not think it to be unusual. In fact, this is typical. This is normal life. There's an old Jewish proverb that goes like this. Very simple. Man makes plans... And God changes them. Jesus put it this way. The Father causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Message is simple. Whether you're saved or whether you're not, whether you're righteous or not, whether you're good or wicked, you're going to enjoy some good times, and you're going to enjoy some hard times. Sun mixed with rain. Even if you're a child of God, the weather can change suddenly and abruptly. Even Paul the Apostle spoke of hardships that he and his team encountered. And they were full on doing God's work. And he mentions them in his letter to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians. He tells them this. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. We want you to be aware of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. <clears throat> what about you? I'm glad he wrote that. Because now when you and I feel that way, 
We don't have to feel embarrassed or ashamed. When someone tells me that's how they feel, I can tell them, hey, you're not alone. You're right where the Apostle Paul was. Paul didn't think he was going to make it. Folks, that's not a fluke. This is how normal life is. If we think it's going to be otherwise, we're going to be fooling ourselves. I read something in Reader's Digest years ago that stuck with me. I don't know the edition or whatever. I just remembered the quote. It went like this. Expecting not to be treated badly because you're a good person is like expecting an angry bull not to attack you just because you're a vegetarian. Get that? Angry bull does not care about your dietary convictions. So the weather in life is unpredictable. And the disciples are about to find out something that Jesus is not just God of the free lunch on the hill. He's God of everything. So that's number one. Weather is unpredictable. Trials happen. We almost need, if we're wise, to expect them. Second principle. In life, no matter who you are, God's the captain. Look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Question. Why did they get into the boat to begin with? Was it their idea? No. It wasn't their idea. In fact, I'm pretty sure they did not want to get into the boat. You know why they did it? Jesus made them get into the boat. This is the second principle. In life, God's the captain. You and I, the disciples, just the crew. So if you have this ideology that says, well, I'm the master of my faith, the captain of my soul, good luck to you on that. And when you come to Christ, you give him the keys, he's in charge. And if you try your hand at mutiny, he will show you through some hard knocks, i.e. trials, that you are not really in charge. Let's go back to Mark 6. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he took a leave of them, he went back up the mountain to pray. See that? He made them do it. You see it? He made them do it. The old King James is even stronger. He constrained them. He compelled them. He urged them. Kind of forced them. What that tells me? It tells me they didn't really want to go. Can you just hear him? Uh, up on the mountain? Hey, Jesus, where are we going? Just, just, just follow me down the mountain, guys. Okay. Where are we going? Oh, we're going down to the sea. Okay. We're here now. We, we, I want you guys to get in the boat. I, we, don't, we don't want to get in the boat. You just pulled off like the coolest miracle ever. You've had 15,000, 20,000 people. We're going to stick to you like glue. Nope. Get in the boat. And he sent them away. Made them go. You know why? Because he's the captain. He's the captain. They're the crew. See, before following Jesus, they thought they were in charge of their lives. But not now. Now that Jesus is involved, they do what he says because he's the captain. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this? Why is this so important? Because it means that when the storm is raging around you, you can have the confidence and satisfaction of saying, well, <clears throat> I don't really know exactly what's up here, but I know this, God brought me into the storm. God brought me here. Why is this happening? I don't know. God brought me here. I was reading Psalms this week, and one just jumped out as if it were prophetic of this very event. Psalm 107, talking about God. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. God does that. 
He does head. So here's the question. Were the disciples in the boat, out on the sea, in the storm, were they there because they were disobedient? Because they were bad little disciples? And only bad little disciples have problems in their lives? Were they in that storm because they were out of the will of God? Answer, no. And I bring that up because there are some people who will say, well, if you're a Christian, you won't go through any hard things. Wrong. They're in that storm because they were in the center of the will of God. Because God put them in the boat, and he sent them out into the sea where the storm is going to meet them. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Let's go to another incident. Go back in your minds to the Exodus. When the children of Israel leave Egypt after 400 years in slavery, and they head out for the promised land. Now, God not only tells them where to go, he gives them the exact route on how to get there. And if you look at a map, and you should, it should puzzle you because it puzzles me. They were not given a direct route. The easiest route would be to go up the coastline and then turn inland. But God put them on the weirdest route ever, eventually bringing them to the Red Sea. In that location, on two sides, there were mountains and deserts completely impassable. In front of them, the sea, deep and wide. Incrossable, they thought. And they decided maybe they would turn around and go back. But when they did, in that little cul-de-sac they were in, they find the Egyptian army bearing down on them, boxing them in. So you know what God was doing? Deliberately putting them into a seemingly hopeless trap. You know why? Because God wants to show them that he's got their resources they know nothing about and that God can put them into and get them out of situations that are literally impossible to get out of. And so it is with this storm. I'm sharing this because I believe that knowing this will revolutionize our pain in trials, because the trials are going to be painful. If you realize, hey, I'm just the crew, God's the captain, he brought me into this place, my captain sent me into this storm, it's huge. I mean, what that makes me think of, if I'm a Christian, or if I, I guess the question is, what makes me think that if I'm a Christian, or if I'm a pastor, that my life should be somehow smooth waters? Where does that come from? Yeah, I know some Christians who have that false notion. Now, if I'm a Christian, and I'm obedient, only good things will happen. Really. I think if that happened, we would be the most shallow and worthless people ever. Charles Spurgeon was speaking to his congregation years ago, and he spoke these words, they might just floor you. He said, I believe the hardest-hearted, most unlovely Christians in all the world are those who've never had much trouble. And those who are the most sympathizing, the most loving, the most Christ-like, are those who had the most affliction. The worst thing that can happen to any of us is to have our path made too smooth. Seriously, here's what I want us to note. You can make your plans, and you should. You can set your agenda, and you should. 
But just understand that as you're writing the script, God always has editing rights. You set the course for the boat, but God can always come in and alter it. And he does. Weather's unpredictable. God's the captain. We're just the crew. Third principle. If God sends you into a storm, expect resources are going to be provided. Check out verse 18. Sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing when they rode three or four miles. Stop right there. Sea of Galilee is about seven to eight miles wide, about 12, 13 miles in diameter, so they were like smack dab in the middle of the sea. And then they see Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, do not be afraid. Now, if you put all the stories together here in Mark, and we're going to do that in just a second, there are three things I want you to discover about Jesus in terms of resources being provided. Number one, he knows. He knows. Two, he prays. And three, he shows up. He comes. We'll start with the first one. He knows. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your life when trials come? Do you think Jesus was up on the mountain? He's doing his thing. He's praying. And he has no clue what is happening to his disciples who are also his friends. The question is, does God ever out of the office? Does God ever go, oh man, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know that was going on for you. No, he knew exactly. He knew exactly. We'll go back to Mark chapter 6 and see it. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. He's up on a mountain, they're in the middle of the ocean, in the dark, three or four miles out into the sea. He sees that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. Okay, you get that, right? He saw them straining at the oars. Well, don't you think you'd have to have really good eyesight to see a boat in the dark four miles away on the sea? Not, not only to see that there's a boat out there, but to have such detail as to be able to see that the people aboard the boat are having a difficult time straining at the oars. That's pretty good eyesight, I would say. In fact, I would say it's impossible to see that well unless you can see some other way. That's sort of the whole point, isn't it? He's God. He's omniscient. He knew exactly what was happening on that boat. He could see it. He knew it in advance. We mentioned Job, right? Remember Job? Job chapter 23. He said something that's pretty profound. And I know that if you've had trials in your life, you have experienced this, and you thought the same things Job did. He's at the heart of his deepest struggle, deepest trial. He writes this. I go forward, but he, God, is not there. Backward, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, I do not behold him. Turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Ever had that experience in a trial? You're out there looking for God. You're wanting his peace, you're wanting his presence. Crickets. Nothing. Do you know what Job finally says? He goes, I've looked everywhere for God. I cannot find him. But then he says this in verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out 
as gold. Do you get that truth? Can't find God, can't see God. Don't know where he is, but I know this, God sees me. So I'm okay with this. He knows everything. That's a good thing to think about when you're in the middle of a mess. What does God know? Uh, everything. God knows everything. Jesus said that God knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, for some of us, the math's getting easier as years go by. But God knows. God knows, right? And that's the first resource we have is knowing that even if I can't see or feel God, even though he's not apparent to me, he knows absolutely, perfectly what's going on. Here's the second point. Jesus prays. He prays. You go, what? What what does God need to pray about? That's right. Jesus prays. And if that's all new information for you, prepare to be wowed. Go back to Mark chapter 6, verse 46, where it says this. After he'd taken leave of the disciples, out to the boat, you guys, he goes back up to the mountain to pray. Question. What is he praying about? What is he praying for? We don't know for sure. We're not told what he's praying for. But I can say I can bet you at least part of that prayer is for the disciples. I mean, if he can see that far, and he knows what's going on in the boat, and the struggle his friends are having, and knowing what he does in John 17, which is praying for his disciples, Father, I pray for those that you have given me, for they were yours, but you gave them to me. I pray for them. I'm sure he's praying for the disciples. He put them out there. It's kind of his fault, right? <laughs> he might have been praying for each of them by name. Lord, I pray for Peter. He's about to say something really stupid. And Andrew's going to chip in with something dumb. And then Thomas is going to be all depressed because he doesn't like anything going wrong. So I have a question. How would you feel if during a trial you knew that Jesus was in the next room praying for you? Would that, like, bolster you? Would that give you some courage and confidence to say, okay, okay, if that's going on, if he knows and he's praying for me, I can handle this. Maybe you know how it is when somebody comes up, maybe even after church, when you're going through a hard time, somebody that you love and loves you, and they go, I've been praying for you, and you go, oh, that's awesome. Thank you. But what if you knew it was Jesus that's praying for you? Well, this is the newsflash. He is. You see, it says in Hebrews, when the author refers to Jesus' role as our priest, it says this, Consequently, and is it because Jesus is our priest, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercede simply means to pray on behalf of. He says that's what Jesus lives for. He's at the Father's right hand, and he lives to pray for you and me. I mean, every situation, every trial, Jesus is talking to the Father about you and me. And I can add this. If anybody knows how to pray, my guess is it's probably Jesus Christ. After all, he is God. He became a man. He knows what suffering is all about. He's been here, right? He's been there, done that. So when he talks to the Father about your pain, it's because he knows all about it firsthand. Third thing he does, he comes. He knows, he prays. Third resource, he comes. He comes to them in the storm. When they rode three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is, I do not be afraid. Here's the question. If you remember Mark's account, you know the answer. When did Jesus come to them? 
What part of the night? What watch of the night? Anybody know? Fourth. Why does Mark tell us this? I'll tell you why he tells us this. He wants us to know how long those disciples have been out on the sea rowing. See, they probably left at sunset. It was evening. The sun was getting set. got dark. The night is divided into four watches. Here they are. Put them on the screen for you. First one, sundown, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Second watch, 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch, midnight to 3 a.m. Fourth watch, 3 a.m. to sunup. That last watch is when he came to them. You know what that means? It means they've been out on the Sea of Galilee, rowing, struggling, suffering for maybe 8 to 12 hours. And only when they're near exhaustion, probably near their wit's end, and can go no further, the fourth watch of the night, Jesus shows up. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure had they had a vote in the boat, they would have said, okay, we, we recommend you come on the first watch of the night. <laughs> he didn't come the first or the second or the third. came between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. He stretched them to the utter limits of an endurance as humans. Listen, if God has you in a storm, he's got his eye on the boat, he has his hand on the waves, and he's not going to allow anything to happen to you that you cannot handle. Question, why did he walk on the water? Was he like, you know, showing off? Did he come out there to impress them? He walked up to the boat like, hey, this is pretty cool what I'm doing here, isn't it? You wanna, yeah, don't you think this is neat? No, I don't think he did that. I think it was for a reason. It wasn't just to wow them. This is what I think. He came to them showing his superiority over the wind and the waves and the trial. He was demonstrating that he's got this. And he's in control of all of it. This trial is not something that Jesus can't handle. See, we, we, we know that he sent them out there. See, they were awed by the miracle of feeding all those people. But they're still struggling to get their minds around who Jesus really is. God in the flesh. With all the power and all the authority that God has. Now, I know we all hate storms. We all hate trials. We dread the notion of a possible surgery, of a possible death of a loved one, of the loss of any kind. But I also know this, from experience and from talking to people, that sometimes in the darkest moments, during the very thing they are going through that they cannot control, often they find Jesus in the deepest presence of him. People will say that they've never experienced God like he did in those dark times. And he came. Corey Ten Boom was part of a family that sheltered Jews during World War II. They were discovered. She was sent to a concentration camp. But she said this, if God ever sends you on stony paths, he'll give you good shoes. I'd rewrite that for our purpose and say, if he ever sends you out in a storm, he'll provide a, he'll provide a great boat. He'll provide you with the resources that you need. He knows, he prays, and he also provides himself. He shows up. Fourth principle, the sky will eventually clear. Look at verse 21, John chapter 6, fourth point. The sky will clear. Storm won't last forever. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. They planned to, take, to go on by, but they get him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Storm didn't last a week. Didn't last a month. Didn't last a year. Some storms, 
Some trials do. This one had a beginning, had an end. And if there's one thing I noticed about storms or trials, it's that God knows when to end them and have the sun come out so you can go on. Doesn't mean you'll never have another one because he knows how to use them and time them. They're seasonal. There was one guy on that boat named Peter, right? He was on the boat, right? Now, Peter wrote years later a letter in which he said this. We rejoice, though now for a season you are in heaviness because of many trials. Trials are not perpetual, they're seasonal. There's a season for them. There's a time they begin, a time that they end. Notice verse 21, it's another miracle, right? It says, immediately when Jesus gets into the boat, the wind stops and they are docked at their ultimate destination. They might have been thinking when the wind stops, okay, now we can row pretty easily and get across. Get across. But the next second it's, whoa, we are there already. What's going on with this? We're not in the middle of the sea. We're docked. But it tells me the hardship, the trial, they didn't waste any time doing it. They didn't waste any time. I hear people say, oh, if I didn't have this trial going on in my life, I could be doing this and this and this. But listen, if God has you in a time of trial and adversity, I think he's quite able to get you to the right destination at the right time at the end of it and you will find that you have not wasted a single second because of what he's done in you and through you during that time. This leads me to a caution. We need to pay attention to our attitudes during storms because being in a storm can be very disorienting. And it can tend towards not only asking why, but it can tend toward complaining. Why, why Lord? Why me? Why now? Why this? And that questioning, God doesn't have a problem with that. But it can lead to despising, which can lead to bitterness. So watch your attitude during a storm. When the writer of Hebrew talks about trials, he says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up. It can cause trouble and defile many. Don't become so impatient. Don't become so embittered. We become so angry that we say things like, God, this is getting old, I'm sick of this, and I'm sick of you. In doing so, you might well miss altogether what God was trying to do and build and teach into your life. Sort of brings up the question. Why a storm anyway? Why does God put me in the boat? Why would he send me out to sea? Why would he then change the weather? Why does he do any of that? The answer is actually pretty easy. Because he's still working on you. He's still working on me. He's working on all of us. Don't know if you noticed this or not, but I'm not perfect. And my suspicion is, if you were honest, you would agree that you're not either. So he's always going to be working on you and me. And he will, sorry to say, do it without your permission or counsel. He's a committee of one. Why? Because he knows everything that's going on, and he knows everything that you're going through, and he knows exactly what is best for you and me. And so, wise people say, okay, I'm going along for the ride. Because there's something at the end of this I'm supposed to see and experience and know that I don't know now. And you worship, and you can rejoice, because that makes you different from an unbeliever going through trials. God puts unbelievers to them too. But they got no point of reference like we do. 
just the bad things that happens to everybody, right? I think what God uses trials for in the lost world is to try to turn them by faith to Christ, right? But as a Christian, these trials are timed, and they're planned out, and they're prescribed for us for our ultimate benefit. Now, final reflection. The disciples do something really smart. Verse 21. They were glad to take Jesus into the boat. Yeah, this isn't their first rodeo in a storm. John doesn't mention this, but the other Gospels do, that before this event, Jesus was at one time totally exhausted from teaching, dealing with the crowds. To get away, he gets in a boat. Disciples get in the boat. Jesus plops down, immediately goes to sleep. They push out to sea. They're headed across the other side. A huge storm pops up. This is not just wind. It's, it's nasty. Disciples do their best, but they're figured, okay, we're going to die. So they wake him up. You want to see us die? Watch this. We're going about to die here. They wake him up. Don't you care that we're about to die? He calms the storm. Then he asks this. Why do you have so little faith? That is, I told you we're going to get into this boat, and we're going to go to the other side. Are we, are we at the other side yet? No, no, we're not there yet. So we're not finished. I meant what I said. We're going to the other side. Apparently, you did not believe me. You did not have the faith to believe that we're going to actually make it. It's time to start believing. And that will be difficult for you until you figure out who I really am. In this instance, Jesus orders them into the boat alone, tells them to go to the other side. Did they connect, you think, the dots from before and believe that they would actually get there? Maybe at first. How about when the wind picked up? And they were making zero progress against it. Hard to tell. They're rolling like crazy. Do they remember the official son that Jesus just healed from miles away? Do they believe that Jesus is able to know and do something about their situation right here, even though he's not in the boat? Don't know for sure. But did you notice this? We were not told that they were afraid of the storm or of dying. No, no, fear or terror pops up when they see someone walking towards them and they think it's a ghost. That's when they get terrified, afraid of the ghost, not the storm. And once Jesus says, I ain't no ghost, I'm here, it's me. They're so glad to get him on board. And then Jesus tells them, I ain't no ghost, I'm here. They're happy. Okay, maybe they're thinking, okay. We weren't sure how we were going to get over there. You said that's where we're going. So maybe we figured out you were serious. We were getting pretty tuckered out here. So we're just kind of wondering what's up. And golly gee, here you are. In the nick of time, and it says the wind stopped, and simultaneously they are beamed from the middle of the sea to the land in an instant. Another miracle. The storm, the trial, all behind them now. Not for sure, but I think their faith just got to bump up. At the very least, it's given them a lot to think about as they try to discern who is this Jesus? What is he all about? Maybe there's far more to him than we really understand. So for you and me, what Jesus says to do, we ought to do. Where he leads, we ought to go. It might not be problem-free, but he sees, and he prays, and he comes. We obey and trust through the trial, knowing in the end he's got this. 
We're never really alone. And the place we land at the end of it will be right where we are supposed to be. Right? And if we're looking for it, maybe we'll have a more complete picture of who Jesus is and what he can do at the end of that trial. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word that you give us, the insights that we can gain about how we ought to live. Yeah, these are disciples, and we think they're goobers sometimes, but you are, you are working on them. You are teaching them. You are giving them experiences that they can grow to know. And what do we see the result of that after your resurrection? Look what they become because of the time you've invested in the good times and the hard times and the trials. May we have eyes to see that the things we go through, you have ordained, you've allowed to happen, and that you are trying to move us in faith deeper and deeper and deeper. So our trust in you will grow. We find it hard to rejoice in trials. We really do. That's because we really don't grasp who you are and what you're doing and how much of it is basically the result of your love for us. Maybe we can see differently as a result of this message and our inculcation of it in our, in our hearts and our minds. May we be changed from our time with you. As we take communion today, we might have a new insight, maybe just a twinge of what you are, that you died for us, that you gave your life for us, that you had a plan for this. You planned for us to be here. You planned for us to come to you. And you're planning to grow us up. And you've got plans for us to go through eternity. But right now, we have some limits. We have bodies that fail. We have a world that's corrupt, that's under the curse. So we're going to have some hard times. But you're doing stuff in those hard times that make us what you want us to be, make us more like you. Help us to live that dream that you have for us. And may your dream for us be far better than we would have a dream for ourselves. So change our plans. Mess up our agenda. Change our time schedules. Do what you will so that we can be what you want us to be. That we can live joyfully and rejoice, even in the hard things, knowing that you got us. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.